If you would take your Bibles and turn them to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Last week we concluded the actual content of the sermon by, by Stephen and the Sanhedrin and before the Sanhedrin. And now we, we come to the response to Stephen's sermon from the Sanhedrin. How do they respond to this sermon that he has given them. One thing we ought to note is sermons elicit many responses from different people. There are times that people respond, cut to the heart, asking what must we do, is what happened in Peter's Pentecost sermon. But it seems that often the response is indifferent to the preaching of God's word, which is in its very least, a passive resistance to the Word of God. And it often comes from many that would proclaim Christ and certainly from those that do not. It makes one wonder that if circumstances were different, would that passive resistance turn to active resistance and even outward acts of aggression towards the preacher really directed uh, awkward, uh aggression towards the word of God what do I mean by circumstances what I mean is if the if the protections and uh, freedoms that we enjoy now were removed would there still be just passive resistance or would it be active resistance you could imagine a man proclaiming the word of God in a large city today when there's a protest taking place you can imagine what would happen to that person in fact, church history is filled with examples of such circumstances resulting in active aggression against the one proclaiming God's word, resulting in their death, or at, worst, or at least their physical harm. We, we don't see that much today beyond maybe uh, firing of a pastor or uh, making accusations against a, a preacher. But something we should note is that fidelity, faithfulness to the Scripture will bring enemies. And preaching the exclusivity of Christ, if under the right circumstance, will bring violence. If circumstances were different, would we not see that today? And I think, I guess that depends on what a preacher is preaching, wouldn't it? Identifying the problem with preaching today Pastor Steve Lawson says this, quote, the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. And that's certainly true of many pulpits. There's no reason to be enraged by what they said because it's nothing more than a TED Talk or pop psychology, psychological babble coming out with a splattering of God's Word mixed in. Now this morning we see the right circumstances which result in murdering the preacher. He spoke truth, and he is killed for speaking truth. And by God's grace, we are able to see in Stephen's life that Stephen, very, all the way to the end, defended his master. That all the way to the end, Stephen imitated his master. All the way to the end, Stephen followed in the footsteps of his master. He does this all the way until his eyelids close for the last time, only to be opened again in the physical presence of Jesus. So let us 
hear the word of God and hear this response. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And following to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of his execution. I want us to see first here, defense of his master. Stephen defends his master. Beginning in verse 54, it says, Now when, which is is shifting from the sermon where Stephen recounted the history of Israel, it shifts from that sermon to their reaction. It says, when they had heard these things. And we have to understand these things is when they heard the Scripture. When they heard the proclamation of truth. When they heard the very things that they would say, we believe those things. When they had heard that. Those very truths that had exposed them that had revealed their, the wickedness and the vileness of their heart, when they had been exposed by God's Word, they were enraged. It literally means they were sawed in two. They're cut in half by God's Word, and they are angry. Their wrath now is emerging. Now, it's not like they would have argued with Stephen's recounting of biblical history. It's not like they would have argued with his biblical references. It's the fact that the sermon confronted them as being no different from their rebellious forefathers. And that Stephen ended the sermon and says, I'm speaking to you. This is to you. And the result we see is that they're angry. They're sawed in half. There's no repentance. There's no self examination there's no pausing to consider the weight of the argument of the sermon there's no pausing of reflection whatsoever rather rage emerges from them anger as god word confronted them it was so bad that it says they ground their teeth at him they ground their teeth And this is the height of irony here in the situation because they ignore the accusations that Stephen makes against them about being the same as their rebellious forefathers. They they deny that. They, They ignore that. And the whole time, what they end up doing is showing those very characteristics of the rebellious. In fact, you'll notice in Psalm 35 verse 16, it says, like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. They grind their teeth in 
anger. A couple verses over, Psalm 37, 12 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. So on the one hand, they are accused of being rebellious. They ignore that. But then what do they do? They act just like the descriptions of the rebellious by grinding their teeth. They don't even see it. You might think they would have recognized this. These are not ignorant men. They're well-educated. They're familiar with the Scriptures. They grew up studying the Scriptures. They would be well acquainted with the characteristics that they are now exhibiting in uncontrolled anger. But while they're educated, while they're familiar and likely have the Scriptures memorized, there's one problem. They don't know God. They do not know the God of the Bible. They are blinded. And God has given them over to their blindness. As we read earlier that God gives over to this. And so when Stephen proclaimed the word of God, he places a mirror before them and yet their eyes were blind to behold the vile wickedness that would have been their reflection Romans chapter 11, verse 7, it says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened. They've experienced that hardening. And you know what the frightful reality is of this mob that's going to take the life of Stephen is that they're gnashing their teeth here and most likely the vast majority of them are still gnashing their teeth for an eternity in hell. The Lord Jesus says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And these that take Stephen's life are still gnashing their teeth. And Stephen had already told them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And they resist the Holy Spirit to their own damnation. They resist the Holy Spirit always. This morning, if you do not know Christ, stop resisting the Holy Spirit. And if you do know Christ, there is an important reminder for us here in this text. And it's this. It's this reality that we live with daily as we often do not see our own sin, do we? We often ignore our own sin even when it's obvious to everyone else. You know, the best way to deal with our own sinfulness, it's real simple, is ask this question, what sin do you see in others? And ask, how do I also do that? And Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions wrote this. He wrote, resolve to act. In all respects, both speaking and doing as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only 
an occasion of my confessing my own sin and misery to God, end quote. That's good advice. That's a good resolution to make. The sin that I see in others, asking myself, how is it that I do this? Seems that Jesus said something to this effect too. You see, our tendency is only to see the sin of others and ignore our own. Or by some form of self-justification, view it as, well, our sin is not as bad as so-and-so's sin, so it's okay. We really become no different than these men. We come to worship. We partake in the Lord's Supper. We sing the same praises together. We bow our head in prayer. We listen to the sermon. Yet the goal, which is transformation, which is sanctification, that is holiness. When it never increases, we've done the same thing as the Sanhedrin here. With hardened hearts, these men gnashed their teeth. Verse 55 says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. What a what a contrast, isn't that? These two verses, they're filled with rage. They gnash their teeth at him. They're overcome with the emotion of anger. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in an inexplicable, inexplicable moment of serenity that Stephen is experiencing, they're overcome with anger. What a, what a contrast to have been able to see this. And what we see here is they're filled with rage. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. What we're really seeing is side by side those that are controlled by the flesh and He who is filled with the Spirit. One sits gazing upward to Christ while they focused here, controlled by anger. What does Stephen do? Where does he look? He gazed into heaven and God pulls back the veil and he gives Stephen a sight of heavenly reality. And we must see this as heavenly reality of what is at all times, as he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. You know, there, there's nothing that comes even close to this event anywhere in Scripture. Not even Isaiah's vision of the heavenly throne room in Isaiah 6 comes close to this. And what's amazing is it actually ties this what he sees the the entire narrative together of chapter 7 because if you'll remember back in chapter 7 verse 2 when we he began the sermon he says the god of glory appeared to our father abraham when he was in mesopotamia and then stephen unfolded the history of the god of glory bringing redemption to his people and as he's coming to the end of his life what is it a glimpse of that Stephen is able to have but the God of glory? Bringing him comfort of all that he had spoken, that it was not in vain. 
in his final moments, he sees the glory of God. But that's not all that he's given. He sees Jesus, and notice what it says in the text. He's standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. A very interesting phrase because normally we see that seated, seated, seated. I knew I'd get that right. (laughs) He's seated at the right hand of God, but that's not what we see here is we see that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing gift for Stephen in this moment because Stephen's the first person to see the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his moment of death. And so often as you look through the book of Acts in a very desperate moment, you see that the presence of Christ comes to to comfort his people. So what a gift this is. And it's really a fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But we have to ask this is why is he standing when we so often see to it that he is sitting? Well, I'm going to say this to you is that it's so significant. But yet it's impossible to grasp all that's taking place here at the same time. But I think it's also essential to how we understand the ongoing work of Jesus at this very moment. Stephen has been judged by a human court. Stephen has stood before the court of man who has rendered a guilty verdict upon him. But yet he looks up to heaven and who does he see? He sees the ultimate judge. Not sitting as judges sit, but standing as the defendant. You imagine this as if you were in a court of law And you have to face the judge and the judge gets up out of his judgment seat and says, I'm also going to defend you. And that's exactly what Stephen sees the Lord Jesus doing. It's as if Jesus says, they reject you, but I receive you. They accuse you, but I defend you. They say you're guilty and I say not guilty. But there's a tremendous truth we have to understand about the gospel and about our own salvation is the Lord Jesus as our high priest mediates on our behalf before our accusers in the same way. There's no truth as comforting as this. That the Lord Jesus stands on behalf of the church. Guarding it, growing it, protecting it as Satan accuses as the world mocks, the Lord Jesus says, Father, you have given them to me and your spirit poured out grace upon them that they may come. Father, keep them. They are mine. Father, protect them. And that is the very thing that the Lord Jesus does without ceasing. That we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ As John says in his letter in the second chapter, the first verse, that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate. And the author of Hebrews gives us these wonderful truths 
about the mediation of the Lord Jesus in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In chapter 8 of Hebrews in verse 6, but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Do you hear the truth of this? Is that the Lord Jesus is our high priest? And the thing that we have to understand about the high priest in Israel is that the high priest once a year would have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Jesus did not offer sacrifices for his own sins because he was sinless. He offered himself for us. And he continues to mediate on our behalf as the sinless high priest standing on behalf of his people. Uh, Stephen's seeing this and, and, and having a glimpse of this heavenly reality. He's given the needed boldness to once again defend his master in, in, in the one thing, in saying the one thing that, that, that would be the, the, the thing that, that breaks the camel's back where they would kill him is when he says this in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He gives testimony. He continues to pour out his witness. He continues to defend the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen states what it is that he sees. And by stating it, he states an important fact and testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, seeing the Son of Man standing. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Stephen sees the fulfillment of this, of the son of man. And this is an important truth. Not only is he our high priest, but he's our king. And he has been given a kingdom. He has been given glory. He has been given dominion that is everlasting. And his kingdom, according to Daniel, is universal. That he is king over all. Stephen sees this. And he proclaims it. Before them. Jesus. Before he was crucified. Had said, you will see this. Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming 
on the clouds of heaven. I wonder how many of the Sanhedrin thought back to the words of Jesus as Stephen sees this very thing. And the wonderful truth about what this is, William Hendrickson quote, commenting on, on Matthew 26 says this, Pentecost, the glorious return on the clouds and on the clouds of heaven, the judgment day all rolled into one, manifesting his power and glory. The truth of Jesus as king and pointing to that ultimate judgment, Hendrickson says this is all rolled into one with this glimpse that Stephen is given. And Stephen defends his master. Knowing what the result will be. Knowing that this would lead to his death. That this was what would tip the scales. Which brings us to our second point. He moves from defending his master to where we see he follows in his master's footsteps through imitation. Look at verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They, they can no longer stand it. They, they, can't, they can't have any more words coming from Stephen. And, and Stephen's final words were, were worse than his accusations and what should have been beautiful to their ears, what should have been lovely to them, caused them to plug their ears and start shouting like a bunch of spoiled brats. I'm not going to listen to you. And they plug their ears and they start shouting at him so they can't hear him continue to testify to the risen king. And they act as if they had never been disciplined. They charge at him. Like irrational animals, they, like a stampede of bulls, unable to control their angle, anger, and they're unable to deal with the truth, they rush in. And the comparison to a stampede of bulls or uh, irrational animals, I have to apologize to the animals. It's an insult to them to be compared to this group of people that attack Stephen. But they can't handle it anymore, and so they rush all at one at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now why, why did they take him out of the city? Why didn't they do it just there in their anger? Well, execution was to be outside of the camp. And it was, it was thought of in, in Israel as... That when you look at the book of Leviticus, what you do is you see actually uh, degrees of holiness. Where the tabernacle is, is the most holy place. And then the holy of the holies within the tabernacle is the, the most holy. And as you go outside of the camp, it, the, the degrees of holiness lessen. And so uh, in some sort of semblance of legality, uh, holding to Gen uh, Leviticus 24, 14, which requires stoning for blasphemy, and the person that makes the accusation is to be the one that throws the stone. And so this is why the witnesses are the ones here that are going to do the actual stoning of Stephen, is that they take him outside of the city to symbolically remove him from the temple area, which would have been considered holy. He's taken outside of the city 
and stoned just as Jesus was taken outside of the city to be crucified. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Stephen, in death, follows his Savior. He follows his Lord. And all the while, did you catch who's there? Saul, who will become the king's next spirit-filled spokesman, is complicit in the death of Stephen. It's absolutely shocking. And we, we all know this, but it should be so shocking to us that Saul was probably one of the men of the synagogue that could not defeat Stephen in debate when Stephen disputed with them. Saul was probably a witness to the trial. Saul is probably one of these that is gnashing his teeth in uncontrollable anger. And as they had brought forth false witnesses, the false witnesses had to fully commit to their testimony that were a pack of lies against Stephen. And they had to be the ones that were the first to pick up the stones and throw. And meanwhile, Saul, who's, who's complicit in, in all of this that's taking place against the Lord's chosen instrument here, Saul says, I'll hold your coats. Makes it easier to throw rocks at someone when you're killing them. It's a shocking reality. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's hard to imagine that he speaks while having rocks thrown at him. As he's being killed. But don't miss something about this. Stephen's alone. He's alone being stoned here. And death is the one thing in life that we do alone. We don't share death with anyone. It's the one thing we do as an individual and purely as an individual. And so Stephen cries out to the Lord a prayer found in Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Faithful God. A psalm that shows distress. Shows one that is in weakness. Shows one that is surrounded by enemies. A psalm that shows the world against you. Just exactly what Stephen was experiencing. But in the midst of his sorrow. As being alone, his confidence. Is that Jesus will preserve. And vindicate him and so alone. He cries to Jesus. And the presence of God. The very thing he had proclaimed comforts him. 
and as the stones are crushing his skull, he has hope in the midst of it. As he physically loses his strength, the Lord empowers him to pray. As his physical life ebbs away, the eternal life in Christ is realized. And what does he do? He prays out loud. To who? The Lord Jesus. Affirming his faith. Before those that would kill him for affirming his faith. As they are killing him. Jesus states the same words. Father into your hands I. Commit my spirit. But Stephen doesn't pray this to the father does he? Stephen prays this to the Lord Jesus. And he does this twice, by the way. In verse 60, again, he's going to say, Lord, calling out to the Lord Jesus, he does this. What's the significance of praying to Jesus? He's praying to God. And as his body begins to fail, notice what he does in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And again, this is an astounding verse because how is it not only that he's able to talk, but that he does it in a loud voice? It reminds you of the Lord Jesus on the cross, that he cries out in a loud voice. And so the prayer for boldness was given to Stephen. That even as his life is taken from him, he is crying out with a loud voice. His, his body gives way as his strength departs, but his voice remains intact and he's able to cry out before the crowd. And he asks not for vengeance upon these that would take his life, but he asks the Lord Jesus for pardon. He says, Lord, would you pardon them? They, they pour out rage, they pay, pour out hate, and Stephen, filled with the Spirit, pours out love. Pause. Ask yourself, would that be your reaction? But notice what it says of Stephen. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, and the Lord Jesus does grant this request in part, doesn't he? Don't hold this against them. You go over a chapter, you read verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized we don't know how many in this crowd that the Lord Jesus answered that prayer but he did for at least one the apostle Paul and what is Stephen doing here but again he's following his savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was mocked and reviled, 
What did Jesus pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, all the way to the end, is imitating his Lord and Savior. And why? Well, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit of grace and supplication had been poured out on him, just like it's promised in Zechariah. And Stephen here dies not as a victim, but as one that is a conquering victor. Notice the words, he fell asleep. Do you know why early Christians called death sleep? Because they had the right view of death. And that is assurance of the resurrection. Hope of the internal inheritance. We look at this response and Stephen, he didn't give an inch. He didn't compromise once. It cost him his life, yet he had already been given eternal life. He was just living in light of what he had been given in Christ. Christ is the risen and ascended king, given glory, dominion, and an everlasting kingdom over all things. Stephen just simply lived in light of that reality. How do we live in light of that reality? How do, how do you live in light of that reality? Do you live as if Jesus is the risen king and has power over all things and has been given glory, has been given a kingdom, has been given a universal dominion over all things? Or do we live as if he's still in the tune? What's our response? You see in here, we see what was glorious to Stephen was blasphemy to the crowd. We see that what brought comfort to Stephen actually brought anger to the crowd. What brought grace? They responded with murder. What brought peace? They responded with violence. What brought hope? They responded with uncontrollable despair. What brought forgiveness? They responded with persecution. What brought a display of mercy? They responded with wrath. One thing we must see is this, is there is no neutral response to the gospel. There's only two responses to the gospel. We reject it or we receive it. What is your response this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel that we may have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be inheritors of an imperishable inheritance awaiting us, kept safely and guarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the one that may not know Jesus, that you would call them this morning, that they would turn to you in faith. And Father, we pray to you as a church that we would stay bold, that we would respond to your word in faith.
and in trust. We pray your help that your spirit would pour out grace upon us. That we could be transformed and continually transformed into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.